starting a new sermon series, Begin Podcast Now. We, uh, we're going to start a series uh, on the life of David. And this is the famous one, King David, in the Old Testament. Let me throw out just a few little facts that, that struck me as I was thinking about doing this series. <clears throat> the, the opening words of the New Testament, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The opening words of the New Testament. Almost the very end of the whole New Testament, the end of the whole Bible, the end of Revelation chapter 22, way there in the the last few verses, one of the last things Jesus says in the Bible, He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Think about this, and you know, we just came off Christmas time. Think about, you know, at Christmas time, we remember that the angel Gabriel, he comes to Mary and he announces that she is going to be with child. She's never heard of this before. And he says to her that you're going to have a son and he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. And so she uh, and Joseph end up traveling to go give birth to her son, or she gives birth as they're traveling, and where do they go? They are going to Bethlehem, the city of David, because Joseph is descended from David. Uh, When you read the Gospels, sometimes an individual, and sometimes a, a surprising individual who maybe didn't have a lot of teaching, will just cry out to Jesus to get his attention, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the final week of his life before his death, when he rides in, what do the crowds yell? Hosanna to the son of David. Now, we could go on and on with more examples, but all that to say, you know, it's just, it's pretty much a truism that we're more comfortable with the New Testament than with the Old Testament. And, and I get that, because it seems a little bit more unfamiliar. The Bible's hard, period, but older can be harder than the new. But I want you to think about this. At some level, if you get to know Jesus, you need to learn about David, because he's just all through his life and ministry. And something that we talk about as a church is that the, you know, there's certain hills that we're just not going to die on. I, I mean, I would say I'm not willing to be martyred over our approach to baptism, I don't know if that means I'm a chicken, but at this point in my life, I'm not willing to be martyred over our particulars on baptism. A hill that we would, I hope, die on is the centrality of Christ. That He's everything, that He's who the Bible's about, that He's who the Old and the New Testament are about. But to get to know Christ at some level, we need to know about David. So because we emphasize Christ, we want to look for about... 12 weeks or so at David in the Old Testament. So that's what we're after. And where I want to start is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible, this is in the, the bulletin, 1 Samuel 16. Real quick, three characters that you need to know. The first is Samuel, whom the book is named after. He's in this passage. He's a prophet, and God has tasked him with anointing a new king. And, and it's interesting, 
when he walks into this city to do that, and it's, guess what, guess what city? Bethlehem. When he walks in to do that, the locals get scared when they see him. Why do they get scared? Because when a prophet came into your town, he might be coming to tell you on behalf of God that your city is about to be, like, wiped out. You're under, a, you're under a divine woe. So they get scared when they see him coming. All right, Samuel, Saul. Saul is the man who is the king of Israel at this point. He's the man that David is going to replace. He was the first king of Israel. He's the first Israelite king in the Bible. And then the third is Jesse. And Jesse actually shows up in other places in the Bible. His name does. He actually shows up in our Christmas hymns. We sing about Jesse. He's David's dad. And so Samuel is going to the home of Jesse. 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to, him, uh, came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. There's nothing like it. Please help us as we hear you. Please open it up to us. Please open us up to you and to it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me throw two names at you um, from decades past. One is more of a 70s name and one is a 90s name. Ted Bundy, Andrew Cunanan. 
heard these names. The first one's a little bit more well-known than the second. Ted Bundy, <clears throat> serial killer in the 70s and executed, I believe, in 1989. Awful, awful, awful things that we won't get into now. Um, Andrew Cunanan, less known. He went on a three-month sort of serial killing spree. Bundy killed women. Cunanan killed men. And uh, he actually killed someone pretty well-known, a designer by the name of Versace in 1997, and then finally killed himself. Common thread with these two serial killers was that they were handsome. And, um, you know, as, as these were investigated, it just became very clear that one thing that gave them a great, if I can put it this way, advantage was that you'd have this handsome person, um, well-dressed, and just so when they encountered a stranger, here's this, like, good-looking, cleaned-up, nicely-dressed person, kind of a, an engaging, winning person. And that little moment where you think, do I need to, like, go somewhere with this person or do I need to let them in? People went, yeah, I think they're okay. Outward appearance. Uh, that is a metaphor for a huge theme in the Bible. And some scholars would say that, that really if First and Second Samuel had like a key verse, it would be verse 7 in this passage. And, and verse 7 is going to frame this sermon. That, that God says, man, meaning just human beings, men and women, People look on the outward appearance. And we want to unpack that a little bit more this morning. We look at the outside, but the Lord, Yahweh, and just in case you don't know this, in English translations, when Lord is in all caps like it is a lot in this passage, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Like my my personal name is Brian. His name is Yahweh. We look at the outside. The Lord looks at the heart. So that's how I want to... Just two points to this sermon. Where do we look? Where does God look? And you already know the answer. Where do we look? Where does God look? All right. In the passage, where is man looking? And, And here's what's already happened. Like I said, in this passage, when we're first encountering David... We're encountering him because this prophet Samuel, who's this main character in First and Second Samuel, he has been sent to anoint a new king. Why? Because the present king is evil. And I, if the expression dumpster fire had been used in this day, that could have been used about the monarchy of Saul. Not in front of him. But his monarchy ends up being a dumpster fire. No one would have thought that when they first saw him. And I want you to look at this passage. This is from earlier in the book, this part in italics under our our passage. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 9. Listen to this description. This is is interesting. There was a man of Benjamin, that means the tribe, whose name was Kish, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, what did we just learn? Saul was, quite literally, tall and knocked down, drag out, handsome. And rich, from a rich family. 
when, I mean, he was a poster boy. He was magnanimous looking. And there's, a, there's actually a part in the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10, where Samuel kind of presents, he's going to present the new king to the Israelites. And Saul is afraid of holding this office, so he's hiding. And they go and find him, and they bring him out, and Samuel just essentially says, just look at him. And people will go, yay! Long live the king! He's awesome! Dumpster fire. Man looks at the outward appearance. So, so then you'd think, wow, okay then, well Samuel got over that little trick. Okay, Samuel has now learned his lesson, don't judge by outward appearances. What happens in our passage? God sends him to this family, town of Bethlehem, home of this man named Jesse, who has all these sons. And all these sons are brought out before Samuel. And when he, when he sees, whoops, hey, how's it going? A little runaway mic, sorry about that. When he sees this oldest son, Eliab, of David, what happens? Does he think, well, it's probably not him because I, you know, we've, we've been down that road before. Look at verse 6. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Did it again. I mean, we keep thinking, I, you know what, next time I'm not going to judge a book by its cover. And then we do. And what does the Lord say? Verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That doesn't mean he can't have a relationship with me. That means as far as him being king, the answer is no. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And at some level, even Jesse doesn't. Jesse doesn't quite know what all is going on. He knows this prophet has said, I've come to make a sacrifice. Don't be alarmed. Um, I want to invite you and your sons to come. And he asked for the sons to appear before him. Literally, apparently, it never dawned on Jesse to go get his youngest. Something important is going on here. There's a sacrifice here. We've got the main people here. We've got the kid watching the sheep. We're good. And the kid is the answer. And it never dawns on Jesse. Now, all that to say, they're just doing what we all do. And, like, this affects your everyday life. But maybe, you've had, maybe you've had a female friend that you, just really, you really cared about, and she falls in love. And she falls in love with a guy who is just, like, sharp and, you know, winning. And, the, you know, it's one of those happy, glowing rehearsal dinners, and everybody thinks, wow, she just got the Ken doll. And then he's like a monster husband. You ever seen that happen? Because we look on the outward appearance and just like, they look so good and they look so happy. And the reality comes out. Or uh, why, why do we have to vet potential employees so much? Because it's just so easy to, for somebody to come in and they just, they just kind of glow and they win people over and they give a great interview and then they're a disaster for a hire. And that's just... This, that's just how this affects like our everyday workaday life. But you think about deeper things with us personally, for instance. Think about how much we torture ourselves with comparison. 
A lot of you know that before I became a pastor here, I was a campus minister, and I know a lot of campus ministers. I remember a friend of mine saying uh, not long ago, who, who was a campus minister, that th- there's this thing that he sees on Facebook semi-regularly, and it just, it just turns his stomach upside down, is where a co-ed who's really got it, you know, like genetically, she won the lottery. And she's kept herself up. So she'll, like I say, she's at the beach with friends, and she takes a picture of herself, and you see a good bit of her, and she looks great, okay? She looks great. And a Facebook friend of hers will, will, you know, in the comments under the photo, someone will say, ooh, I hate you. Frowny face emoji. And it's kind of kidding. But my friend said... This friend said the tragedy is when you know, it was when he knows the person who posted that. And it's it's another co-ed who genetically she is just, she can't ever look like that. And so what she is saying in between the lines is, you are valuable and I am not. Because man looks at the outward appearance. Let me me throw another one at you. Uh, To to a name and and a term. Do you know what Nextdoor is? Nextdoor is sort of like a neighborhood version of Facebook. Um, I'm on it, FYI. So let's, so let's talk sometime. But it's, it's sort of a, a neighborhood version of Facebook started several years ago. All right, do you know the name Lecrae? Lecrae is a Christian hip-hop artist. He's an amazing guy. And... Uh, a godly man from everything I've heard, a very theologically minded godly man, husband, all the rest. All right, I'm telling you, if I may be a little provocative, if Lecrae walked down my street, especially with a hood on, at almost any hour of the day, next door would light up. Because man looks at the outward appearance. And the Lord looks at the heart. Um, Think about this. Think about lost causes. Tim hit on this last week. If if you've never read Mark chapter 5, this passage that Tim preached on last week, you've got to read it. It's about Jesus rescuing a man who's possessed by demons. And we were, we were laughing in our community group when we talked about this passage this week that how we talk about somebody that we think is close, like Christians will talk about this person being close, and usually like close to becoming a Christian. And usually, because of what we're like, we, the people that we think are close are people that are cute and they're already friendly and they kind of already watch the cable news outlet that I watch. And... I invited them to church, and they said yes. They, they didn't grow up in the church, but they're nice people, and they said yes to me. And we feel like, okay, they're close. And in our community group, we were laughing about, if you'd seen this naked man lacerated with chains hanging off him, charging the boat at Jesus and the apostles, ah! no one in the boat would have gone, you know, I think he's close. <laughs> and the irony is, he is close. Like He is minutes away from becoming a follower of Jesus. But 
No one would have thought that was the case. Why? Because man looks on the outside. Lost cause, unrescuable, a nice, you know, nuclear family can be reached. He cannot. And he was. You get the point. We look at the outside. Where does God look? God looks on the heart. What is the heart? And if you've been around, you've probably heard this before, but it bears repeating because that term is huge in the Bible. There's an Anglican theologian named named J.C. Ryle, and J.C. Ryle once said that the heart is the main thing in true religion. And I agree with that 100%. The heart is the main thing. It's not the doing or the rituals or the externals. The heart is the main thing in religion. What is the heart? And because of, you know, whatever, Hallmark cards and all the rest and, and heart emojis. Let's go back to the emojis. We tend to think of feeling, and the heart engages the feelings. Feelings flow from the heart, but the heart is just the control center of your whole life. It is the control center of who we are and what we do. And it has feeling, yes, but it thinks and it does. Will and intellect and inward affections and feelings, that, that is, those are the activities of our heart. And here's the thing. You'll know you're getting wiser when, as you look at your heart, you begin to go, oh, no. Oh, dear. I mean, do you find that as you get a little bit older, year by year, that um, you realize, I'm hurting people around me. And I'm not even doing the good things that I know to do. I'm hurting myself. Do, you, do, you, do we know this about ourselves? That's because of our heart. And you know what? If all the Bible did was just diagnose our hearts, it would be the most discouraging book imaginable. And, here, and here's the great thing. The Bible diagnoses our hearts. And then it gives you good news. I'm, I'm going I'm to pull out of 1 Samuel for a second. Let me read you one verse from the New Testament. If you're taking notes, this is worth writing down for your encouragement. This is 1 John 3.20. And 1 John 3.20 says this, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Let's go back to the passage. Um... Let's see, let's see if you paid attention when we read it. Who went with Samuel to Bethlehem? Did you catch that part of the passage? Who went with Samuel to Bethlehem? A cow. A heifer. What's a heifer? A heifer is a young cow that hasn't born a calf, hasn't given birth. So, trick question. I guess I should have said what, but we'll say who from the perspective of the cow. The cow went with Samuel. Why did the cow go with Samuel to Bethlehem? So that Samuel could sacrifice it. And I don't have time to get into this, but I just have to acknowledge this. It is beautiful 
to me that when Samuel says, if you send me to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, Saul's going to find out and he's going to kill me. And that God says, well, just say you went to go do a sacrifice. But he does. He doesn't lie. He does go do a sacrifice. And this other thing. Why does God want Samuel to go to Bethlehem and sacrifice a cow? Does God need that? Why did God, sac- Why did God command the killing of all those bulls and cows and goats and sheep? Does that have the power to do something? I mean, if it did, then you could harness it. Gorge on pornography, kill the heifer. That essentially, what choose your vice and then the sacrifice, that is straight-up paganism. And here, and this will sound like heresy, here's what's right about paganism. Don't write that part down. Here's what's right about paganism. Paganism gets this right, that it's the shedding of blood that's the vehicle for cleansing. Then here's the weird thing. On the one hand, the same Bible where you got God commanding, do this sacrifice, do this sacrifice, that bull, that heifer, that sheep, also makes it very clear God doesn't need that. And if the Old Testament is somewhat clear, the New Testament is explicit. It cannot take your sins away. Then why, why does God command Samuel to go kill a, bull, kill a cow? Those sacrifices were his way of driving deep, deep down into the Israelite heart what we need. Something so earthy that you can touch it and smell it. If you kill a heifer, you will smell it. Touch it and hear it and smell it and see it. That I need some other to shed blood in my place. Do you know how God redeems hearts? Two big things. Substitution and habitation. I'm going to make a sacrifice even as I anoint this young man king. Here's the thing you've got to watch when we look at the life of David. Don't turn him into Sunday school figure. Because what I don't want you to get from this passage is, wow, God looked at the different hearts. Nope, nope, nope. And then he looked at David and said, ah, David's got a good heart. Let's make David king. Because I can see his insides and he's got a good heart. Did David have a good heart? If Saul's monarchy was a dumpster fire, uh, David's love life and family and parenting was a dumpster fire. And his other mistakes. But God was willing to say he's a man after my own heart. Why? Because David actually believed that the Lord could substitute another for him. Comes out in the Psalms. Comes out in other passages we're going to look at. But here it is. The shedding of blood. Because we need another to do it. And I, if, if you don't 
understand what I'm talking about, I hope you'll keep coming because we talk about this all the time. But what is all this pointing to is that someone was going to be born in that town and grow up and go on another journey to make another sacrifice. And the sacrifice was himself as the son of David. To do what the bulls and the goats and the calves can't do is to now forever wash our hearts clean. Do you believe that? Either, have you ever believed that for the first time? Or are you someone who's believed that for a long time? Do you really believe that? If you trust in Christ, that His blood washes you clean, that He is the great priest and sacrifice, are you clean right now? Do you really believe you're clean? After what we've said and done and felt in our secrets this week, do you know that God's Word champions that if you turn to the Son of David, you are clean. You are clean. And then it says this, He doesn't just cleanse us, but the Spirit of God, if I may put it this way, rushes upon us. David was anointed with the Holy Spirit and he was able to do things that human beings naturally can't do. And you know what? Every person who turns to the Son of David is anointed and filled, inhabited. And the New Testament uses the language of anointing with the same Holy Spirit to change our hearts from the inside so that we can do things we can't naturally do. It probably won't involve giant Philistines. It will probably involve loving our neighbors and loving our enemies, which does not come naturally to us. Um, if, if this interests you at all and you're new around here, I hope you'll keep coming. Because to study the life of David is to point ahead to the one that we're called to believe in and follow, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray that we won't think about ourselves in terms of how we're coming across to others or what we're projecting on social media or even what we hate about our our outside. But we pray that we would entrust our very heart of hearts, the real us, to You. And Father, this morning, whether it's someone's first time to pray, maybe ever, or to pray this, or whether it's Your people saying it yet again, cleanse our hearts. Cleanse us by the Son of David. Change us, Holy Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.